This is a 3CR community radio podcast. In Psychedelia is broadcast every Sunday from 2pm. Good afternoon and welcome to In Psychedelia on this um, rather mild uh, Sunday uh, autumn afternoon uh, in the studio with Nick and Ash. How are you guys? Afternoon, really good. Yeah, it's been a I thought it was meant to rain and stuff, but it's yeah. been a nice weekend. I know, it didn't end up happening at all. Um, I, I was hoping for a bit of rain because uh, rain helps during the uh, autumn times for all sorts of things. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio, uh, 855 AM, digital and streaming at the website, 3cr.org.au, uh, where you just heard from Freedom of Species, who will be back next week from 1 o'clock, and I've just been told to uh, check out the Palm Oil app, um, so I'll be having a look. Uh, hopefully they'll post that up on their social media uh, just to find out a bit about that. Now, we have a big show on uh, the afternoon. Uh, we are going to be hearing from Dr. Stephen Bright, who spoke at a uh, the Melbourne leg of uh, Global Psychedelic uh, uh, Dinners, raising money for the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, uh, and that was uh, about, a, about a year ago, and we'll be hearing from him. Um, also, lots of, uh, lots of news on the way, um, and some events and campaign updates as well. Yep. Yeah, we've got all of those things and more. Let's get into some news. And Psychedelia News of the Week. I don't condone or advocate that everyone should use illicit drugs. I think it's a, a huge decision made with the right amount of research and forethought. The intention is to discourage ICE use. The actual effect is it encourages the stigmatisation of people who use this drug. The risk there is people are less likely to disclose their use even when they're experiencing some issues, so they're less likely to access essential health services. The potential for harm increases. People feel hesitant to be open about who they are because they're afraid of judgment from family members or people at work or or just people in society in general. Many of them have conservative mindsets regardless of their politics uh, and will just say, oh well, then the, the, the government are not looking after us and therefore it seems a law and order issue rather than a, a social problem that needs to be dealt with on, on a public health basis. Drug news from Melbourne and around the world. Since the Trump administration came in, there's been a lot of conversation around the reinvigoration of the drug war with the Attorney General Jeff Sessions, you know, saying things like only bad people smoke marijuana and uh, reversing a decision by the previous Attorney General Eric Holder to, he sent out a memo to um, prosecutors suggesting that they don't go for the highest or the mandatory minimum sort of sentences for low-level drug offences. Jeff Sessions has sent out a memo recently reversing that decision, telling people to prosecute to the full force of the law. And, uh, yeah, there's a bit of tension between states which have legal cannabis uh, programs now, recreational and medicinal. And um, and, um, how that tension plays out between the states and the federal government. So in Vox this week... um, Inga, oh, I'm going to pronounce her name very poorly, <laughs> apologies, uh, 
Inga Freikland is a former Chicago prosecutor and she's written a piece for Vox uh, saying that she spent the 80s prosecuting the drug war and it was a disaster and breaks down the reasons why it's a bad move. Uh, This is US Attorney General Jeff Sessions announcing that aggressive new policy uh, direction at the US Department of Justice uh, based upon an argument that drugs and violent crime go together so prosecuting these communities more harshly will reverse violent trends. Today I am announcing that I sent a memo to each of our United States attorneys last night, establishing a charging and sentencing policy for this Department of Justice. And I trust our prosecutors in the field to make good judgments. They deserve to be unhandcuffed and not micromanaged from Washington. Going forward, I have empowered our prosecutors to charge and pursue the most serious offense, as I believe the law requires, uh, most serious, readily provable offense. This is a key part of President Trump's promise to keep America safe. We are seeing an increase in violent crime, and we know that drugs and crime go hand in hand. They just do. The facts prove that so. Drug trafficking is an inherently dangerous and violent business. If you want to collect a drug debt, you can't file a lawsuit in court. You collect it with the barrel of a gun. In 2015, more than 52,000 Americans died from a drug overdose. That's a stunning number. According to a report by the New England Journal of Medicine, the price of heroin is down, its purity is up, and its availability is up. We intend to reverse this trend. We are returning to the enforcement of the laws as passed by Congress, plain and simple. If you are a drug trafficker, We will not look the other way. We will not be willfully blind to your misconduct. We are talking about, for example, a kilogram of heroin. That's 10,000 doses of heroin on the streets. Five kilograms of cocaine, 10,000 kilograms of marijuana. These are not low-level drug offenders we in the federal courts are focusing on. These are drug dealers and you drug dealers are going to prison. Working with integrity and professionalism, attorneys who implement this policy will meet the high standards required of the Department of Justice, and together we will win this fight. And that's the U.S. Attorney General uh, Jeff Sessions announcing uh, a, a, a bit of a rollback uh, to regressive policies in terms of uh, uh, policing and prosecuting uh, drug crimes, especially non-violent drug crimes. Limited in how much that will affect the states. The federal prison system has about 200,000 people in it. Um, And so this would only affect those kinds of things, like a lot of drug laws as around the world are um, state-based. The Lancet, the prestigious medical journal, has uh, published a study looking at HIV and the criminalization of drug use and, and how that affects the public health response to things like HIV. And it was a systematic review where they looked at, um, I think, over 100 studies or something thereabouts and uh, looked at some measures to compare how the drugs were uh, sort of regulated from a criminal law sense and then compared that to public health measures and outcomes. And so, yeah, they found that criminalization of drug use does have a negative impact on HIV, as you would expect.
Police have swooped in early this morning to arrest and charge a 25-year-old man with the distribution of the popular drug acetaminophen. Uh, people who take acetaminophen may experience bl- bloody or cloudy urine, fever, pain in the lower back or side, severe or sharp, pinpoint red spots on skin, skin rash, hives, or itching sores, ulcers or white spots on lips or in the mouth, sudden decrease in the amount of urine, unusual bleeding or bruising, unusual tiredness or weakness. Over 15,000 people have been hospitalised due to overdose on acetaminophen in the past seven years. And I made this story up, um, apart from that list of side effects, the name of the substance and the 15,000 people that have been uh, hospitalised for overdose acetaminophen is Panadol. And I decided to make this story up after reading a story from WKRN in Nashville, Tennessee, in the US, uh, reporting on a young man, 26-year-old man, uh, who was arrested for possession and selling uh, extracts of the Southeast uh, Asian herb Kratom. Uh, now, Kratom is a plant, and the extract is made uh, by getting the leaves and basically um, grinding them up until you've got a powder. Uh, but that didn't stop WKRN referring to this uh, plant as a synthetic opiate uh, and reading out a list. This was a very short story, of course, uh, as it's about Channel 7 News style um, reading out a series of uh, side effects. Uh, the side effects uh, can cause edginess, vomiting, sweating, constipation, delusions, respiratory depression, psychotic episodes, hallucinations and paranoia. Uh, This is a classic example of sort of uh, trying to distort or create bias based on only reading the side effects, which um, can be uh, in very few people uh, receiving uh, that. If if I go through uh, Panadol's uh, full list of side effects, it can get even more serious. Uh, But of course, uh, you know, they're they're a bit more meted on that sort of thing. Uh, But the point is here that this was a uh, young man who was arrested uh, for the uh, possession and distribution of this plant, which, by the way, it's only illegal in like five US states and uh, uh, Tennessee happens to be one of those. So unfortunate there. Um, And it's also a uh, plant that uh, has been uh, researched for use in uh, helping people who are addicted to opiates or methamphetamine or other amphetamines. So one with potential distorted story there. Yeah, the story (laughs) with um, Kratom is interesting in the United States. There was a big discussion about the DEA cracking down on it last year and a big community push against that, which seemed to get that uh, rolled back, which is why it's still legal in those other states. Um, Another one from the United States, the Vermont uh, legislation has been put on the governor's desk for legalizing cannabis. They're going to, the bill as it's laid out, the first step is to decriminalize cannabis, allow people to grow a small amount at home and um, instructing the government to look into ways to tax and regulate it. Now, the Vermont example is interesting for us here in Australia because it reflects uh, the legislative process here a little bit more than how legalisation has come about in other states in the United States. Every other legalisation for recreational cannabis has come about through a ballot initiative, which is where if people get a certain amount of signatures, they can essentially get any question put on a referendum at the next election. So the Vermont has actually gone through the parliament, so it reflects a little bit more how the process might work for somewhere like here. Keep our eye on that. Uh, still staying in the US, um, but also to the Philippines. It's a little bit of both. US President Donald Trump recently invited Philippines' own devil president, Rodrigo Duterte, to the White House. Uh, neuroscientist Dr. Carl Hart was recently in the Philippines, uh, in Manila, attending a drug conference, uh, but was forced to leave uh, the Philippines early 
due to death threats made against him. Uh, when I was in the Philippines, uh, the thing that I discovered is that it's a lot worse than I originally thought it was. Uh, Duterte um, operates in intimidation. And so um, not only is he the problem, but there are other political officials who are afraid to speak out. Uh, they are the problem. And Duterte has taken a page out of the 1980s U.S. drug war in that he's using drugs to uh, separate people, the issue of drugs to separate the poor people from the people who have means. And he is allowing or providing the environment so people could kill, as you pointed out, kill people who are engaged in drug use and in drug trafficking. Um, and um, people are afraid to speak out against his wrong, because Duterte has no qualms about um, having people's lives be threatened. In fact, I discovered that people are being killed uh, for as little as $100. It ranges from about $100 to $500 to have someone killed. Um, um, and so, um, actually, I left the Philippines early because my life was threatened, um, because of me speaking out against what Duterte was saying about drugs and what he's doing. Um, um, and so, um, we have it bad in the United States, but the Philippines, um, it, I have never seen anything like the Philippines. So I gave a talk basically saying that um, what Duterte had said, he said that methamphetamine shrinks your brain. And this provided justification for people to kill people who use methamphetamine. Uh, and I said that was ludicrous. There was no science to support that. Uh, he was upset about it. He responded. Uh, his people online, they responded with threats and that sort of thing. Um, I didn't think my statement was controversial, uh, but turns out it was because this is a, this is justification uh, for killing people. That's neuroscientist Dr. Carl Hart speaking there to Amy Goodman from Democracy Now, which you can hear uh, every morning on 3CR, uh, every Monday morning on 3CR from 9am. Uh, China has also thrown its support behind Duterte, calling the international community to respect the Philippines' sovereignty over this uh, criminal issue. Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesman uh, Zheng Shuang said that drugs are the common enemy for all human beings, bringing pain to many developing countries, including China. China supports President Duterte and the Philippines government in combating drug-related crimes in accordance with the law. We hope the international community can respect the judicial sovereignty of the Philippines and support its effort in fighting drug-related crimes through cooperation. The Philippines, under President Duterte, uh, continue to murder thousands of people with death squads and vigilante killings for crimes as minor as possession, use, or even an allegation of use, or even, apparently, uh, just saying that maybe that's a bad policy, uh, since there were threats made to Dr. Carl Hart there. Yeah, it, uh, that's what happens when you go down that sinister pathway um, I, I believe our government recently spoke out against the um, Philippines' uh, extrajudicial killings. There, yeah. I, Unfortunately, I'd... I think about two or three weeks after Julie Bishop was in the country and said nothing at all. So I think, you know, a little bit of Australia trying to have it both ways mm. in terms of our relationship to that from the, from the federal government level. Yeah, um, more news. Oh, I've got something from Indonesia as well, if you want to <laughs> oh, <laughs> stay yeah. in the uh, Southeast Asian region. Indonesia has rejected the possibility of abolishing the death penalty at a UN hearing reviewing the country's human rights situation. The government uh, in Indonesia argues that the death penalty is an effective deterrent 
despite the fact that drug-related crimes and other serious crimes continue unabated. The Catholic Church uh, and Catholic Church leaders in Indonesia have been uh, strong in their criticism of uh, the rejection by the Indonesian government um, of uh, ceasing the death penalty. Uh, Tegu Budiono from the community of Sant Egidio... <laughs> I'm sorry about that. A Catholic lay group said keeping the death penalty will perpetuate a culture of violence in society. He stated, instead of providing a deterrent effect, this practice will only provide an affirmation of the passion of revenge. The Irish Senate have uh, started the process towards establishing medical supervised injecting centres over there. So that's come about through uh, a new position, the drugs minister... Um, Ireland recently created that position, I think, a couple of years ago now. And, uh, yeah, so it looks like that that issue, it's not just an issue here in Victoria, you know, around North Richmond, which it is an issue, but it's something that they're, they're battling with all over the world now, even in the United States. It looks like there's going to be a couple set up there in the near future. Well, we're uh, on uh, the topic of injecting centres as well. Uh, this week, a second report has come out from the coroner, a different coroner um, who looked into uh, some, uh, I think it was about 40-year-old uh, man's death in the Richmond area uh, from overdose. And the coroner recommended this week uh, for the second time uh, that Richmond uh, introduce a uh, safe, uh, medically supervised injecting centre uh, in the area to deal with this issue. Um, but still the government is standing against it. They didn't have any particular statements when this story uh, came live on about Thursday. Um, they were just sort of like, oh, no, it's, no we shouldn't be doing that. Um, we're going to send our other people to, to talk about it. Uh, so despite the fact that pretty much everybody from every other path, uh, the academics, the people working in the field, uh, legal professionals, uh, the people that are on the streets, the people that work in the area are all calling for this, yet a few... Weak politicians are still not moving on this issue because they think that it'll look bad for law and order. Yeah, I think the other thing that has um, really changed on that issue is the the community drive behind it now. There's like community resident community groups like really actively campaigning on this, like going up to take tours of the injecting facility in Sydney, you know, writing articles for media publications. Um, what are they called again? The Victoria Street Drug Victoria Street Action Drug Solutions. Drug Solutions. Yep. Um, yeah, so that's an interesting group. But what do you think, Nick? Do you think that this government is actually going to move on it when the the um, inquiry into the injecting well, facility is open right now? That's what they're saying. They're saying um, the reporting on it was a little bit confusing because um, we, we talk about the drug issues all the time, so we're aware that there are two inquiries uh, going on right now into drug issues. One of them is specifically about the medically supervised injecting centre in the Richmond area. The other one is a much broader inquiry into the way that Victoria currently uh, handles its drug policies and, and laws. Um, so that one isn't due to uh, be uh, report back to Parliament until March next year, um, while the injecting centre one I think will be reporting back uh, by the end of this year, I think it'll yeah, be. I think it's like September or something. It's quite short. So the uh, they they keep saying that they're going to wait until 
uh, that uh, inquiry is, is finished, mm. um, which could be a way of stalling for them. It feels like a way of stalling, stalling through constant um, democratic processes. And you, you start to wonder, like, well, h- how many times do we need to, like, investigate this? Um, but uh, if they don't move on that and then they stall till the, till the next drug policy thing, it's going to get into election time. It might, may very well turn into an election issue. We'll, we'll see. Well, quite possibly, but um, I just wonder, are they going to try and position themselves heading into the next election as very progressive on drug policy? Mm. Or are they not? Because I think that will, you know, give a bit of a indication, with, you, you know, if they don't accept the, the medically supervised injecting centre when the uh, inquiry report is, is tabled, then I think we can expect that heading into the next election, they aren't going to run on a progressive drug policy. And um, they have said things um, already in relation to this, like, oh, we're doing lots in other areas. So it seems like they're trying to throw money into into other programs, programs that um, largely uh, have done the job that they need to do. Everybody's aware and everybody knows what needs to happen um, and what needs to happen is a medically supervised injecting centre. But if they keep throwing money these ways and announcing it and talking about it, it's the uh, illusion of looking to be doing something while not doing anything well, at I all. Well, I think, I mean, when you're following the policy detail on this, it's, um, it's, it's interesting because, you know, some of the things that the government is doing is accepting two out of three of the recommendations from that original coroner's report. And that was for things like expanding the naloxone program, like peer support services. So, you know, people who inject drugs can support others. And, And that's pretty good policy, but they're kind of they're doing some good things in the background, yet on the public image of it, uh, essentially trying to run the same hard law and order campaign as governments do, you know, when they're in trouble. Mm. Um, uh, well, we, we're also going to talk about the uh, high, alert, uh, high Alert campaign, which has been ongoing in response to Operation Safe Night, um, and uh, some of the other things that are coming up uh, in the next couple of weeks uh, in terms of uh, drug policy, law, or just cultural uh, little bits and pieces. Um, but I think uh, that's about enough for news for now. A bit of, bit of music? I think so. Electricado Circadian Rhythms. Uh, this is a Zebla and Kanti Experience remix, and it's from the Scribble remixed... Uh, album, which you can hear in full on soundcloud.com forward slash electrocardo. This is in Psychedelia on 3CR.
the Green Left Weekly Annual Comedy Debate with Rod Quantock is on again. Saturday, June the 17th at the Brunswick Town Hall. MC extraordinaire Rod Quantock will host two teams of comedians debating whether fake news is real news. Comedians include Sean Bedlam, Gabe Hogan, Shirley Hood, Kirsty Mack, Morven Smith and Pauline Fartson, Hellchild. The Green Left Weekly Annual Comedy Debate, Saturday, June the 17th at the Brunswick Town Hall, corner Sydney Road and Dawson Street, Brunswick. Doors open at 6.30pm. For bookings, go to trybooking.com forward slash Q-A-E-N or call 9639 8622. That's 9639 8622, a 3CR supporter. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio. Uh, this is in Psychedelia. Nick and Ash are with you. But right now you're going to be hearing from Dr. Stephen Bright, uh, who uh, works in addiction studies. And he was speaking at the Melbourne event for the Global Psychedelic Dinners, raising awareness and money for the Multidisciplinary Associations of uh, Psychedelic Studies to conduct uh, research uh, into MDMA for clinical purposes. The event was held at Flory Institute at the University of Melbourne about a year ago. And you can watch the full video at the EGA YouTube channel youtube.com forward slash entheo tv uh, don't forget as well ega has a conference on in uh, december globe uh, uh, with uh, people from all across the, the world coming to talk about uh, psychedelic science uh, and also cultural issues uh, entheo.com uh, is their website and uh, on, uh, I think it's not this weekend coming, but uh, in two weeks, two weeks' time, the Australian Psychedelic Society will be holding another event uh, on psychedelic science at the Flory Institute. If you want details, psychedelicsociety.com.au or find them on Facebook. This is Dr. Stephen Bright. Notice when I was speaking with my peers and colleagues in psychology and, and just in general that there was this incongruence between... Uh, their understanding of the toxicity of alcohol and other drugs and the actual nature of the toxicity of these drugs. And they seem to be thinking that, you know, this war on drugs was doing a pretty good job. It was working quite well. And so that's what led me to take a critical approach because it forces, the critical approach forces us to, to look in the mirror it looks at how psychology or social work or medicine and other professionals cling on to ideas that are self-serving, often that are influenced by society and those in power. And that, that, that felt pretty good to me because I'm a bit of an anti-authoritarian. And because with critical theory, what it's really asking is how is our profession, by clinging on to these self-serving ideas and theories, how is that potentially disempowering people? And hence, um, the people that I was seeing who were quite disempowered had experienced trauma and were stigmatised uh, as being people who, as, as drug users, or as I prefer to say, people who use drugs. And it, uh, it, 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 the bit about empowerment um, is quite ironic because 
when I start, entered into this idea of using critical theory, what I quickly realized was there was some irony there because the language and jargon of critical theory makes it almost inaccessible. And I spent my first couple of years just trying to understand what the hell critical theory was, using all these big words like ontology and epistemology and, and so on and so forth. And what I'm going to try and do today is, is make... Um, is, is, have, is talk you through my research and do my best to do it in, uh, presented in a lay way. I mean, my ultimate plan was to smash the misinformation in psychology and in society more broadly regarding alcohol and other drugs through social, uh, sorry, through critical theory. And in particular, I took uh, the social constructionist approach, um, which is a theory that suggests that What's deemed as to be truth, what's deemed to be real, is jointly constructed through individuals within their society through our interactions. And there's two schools of, of social constructionism. There's the fundamental, fun, fun, fundamentalists who believe that there is no objectivity because of our inherent subjectivity. And um, there's the more moderate social constructionists who say, they say they're, they're, there is an objective world, but we can never truly know what that world is um, or see or understand that world because of that inherent subjectivity that we bring to it. At a famous conference about 15 years ago, they were, they were debating this, this out and someone went, that there, objective reality. The fundamentalist uh, gave a very... Um, a, a, a very long and, and academic um, explanation as to why, uh, you know, that, that was being, this could not be uh, objective reality because of the subjectivity. I decided to take uh, the approach that, yeah, this, this, there, there is this objective reality out here, um, but we do have difficulties in, under, in, in truly understanding what the objective reality is because of our subjectivity. So alcohol and other drugs have objective pharmacological effects, but they are also social constructions. These constructions of alcohol and other drugs limit what can be reasonably said about alcohol and other drugs. And that's why there are limitations in terms of what is talked about in the media when it comes to alcohol and other drugs. And because views of reality are culturally embedded, those views dominant at any time and place will serve the interests and perspectives of those who exercise the most power in a particular culture. So alcohol and other drugs are chemical structures. They're objects. I've pictured a couple here. Molecules like water and oxygen. Although in this case I've pictured alcohol and methamphetamine because unlike water, uh, water's probably, uh, methamphetamine and alcohol are probably more likely to have stronger social constructions. There's going to be more subjectivity and a less, uh, uh, more of a barrier and a filter between that objective reality and what we deem to be true. So there was a study by David Moore, um, and he, 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 he talked about drugs having particular personalities, um, and it, or drugalities, as he says. And so alcohol is a bit of a larrikin, as you can see, with Bob Hawke having a, having a beer. 
Heroin has, is a bit oppressive in its, in, its, in its nature. And maybe ice is a bit of a sociopath and a little perverse. So social constructionism is underpinned by language. And in doing so, it's underpinned by this notion of dominant discourses, which are linguistic frameworks. And the dominant discourses are those that hold the most truth value. Each discourse is supported by a dominant institution that has a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. By maintaining that status quo, they maintain their power. So what might be some of these institutions? This is just one of many institutions. There's medical institutions that have vested interest, pharmaceutical institute, in terms of pharmaceutical, the pharmaceutical industry. And so what I'm going to hopefully do now is, 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 is highlight that these dominant discourses highlight how they can limit what we can think, say, and, and what research can be done about a given topic, such as alcohol and other drugs. I've got a little diagram. This is the first time I've tried using this diagram to explain uh, this very um, complex and impenetrable theory of critical analysis in psychology. So basically, what I'm trying to demonstrate here is that Within a discourse, one of these red circles, an object is uh, constructed. And so, for example, within a medical discourse, which is um, supported by the medical institution, drugs are constructed as, as pathogens, as dangerous. And in turn, that leaves uh, the availability of particular subject positions within narratives that can be talked about the way we talk about um, alcohol, the way we talk about drugs in society. And so the subject positions available within the medical discourse are those of um, the sick person who, after being exposed to the pathogen of a drug, develops the disease of addiction. Um, or they can be deemed as quite irrational people because why on earth would somebody take a dangerous drug. And this really disempowers the person who's using drugs. And it's in the vested interest of medicine and or the medical institution to maintain this discourse as it gives them power. It, it helps them it helps them control what's true. And these discourses interact with one another. So my PhD uh, found that there were four primary dominant discourses in Australia, and they all kind of say the same thing, that drugs are bad. So in medicine, drugs are bad because they're pathogens, they're dangerous. With regard to moral discourse, um, the drugs are constructed as corruptive, so that if you're exposed to them, they might, um, they might corrupt you morally, or they're even evil. And again, this limits the subject positions with, with, within which people can be um, placed within the narratives when we're talking about people who use drugs or that we're or talking about drug use in general. And it interacts with the medical model because people who are morally weak need help. They need treatment. They need treatment from medical experts. But in essence, the moral discourse 
says that people who use drugs are bad. Legal discourse constructs uh, the drugs as contrabands and the subjects as criminals. And political discourse continues with the idea that drugs are dangerous and it's their job. In fact, it's their job to protect us from these dangerous drugs. And hence, while we see moral panics emerging within moral discourse and the political response to that is to save us all by banning more of them. So these discourses um, demarcate what Tupper refers to as drugs versus non-drugs. So what I've talked about so far are the dominant discourses of drugs in Australia. This does not apply to caffeine, alcohol, tobacco or pharmaceuticals. It can do at times, but there is this demarcation made, this dichotomy between drugs and non-drugs. Um, if you had asked me in 2008 when I conducted this study if cannabis might be considered a non-drug, I would have thought you were a little, a little crazy. We're, we're moving towards clinical trials of cannabis. So it's being framed now, it's being moved from a drug to a non-drug. It's being able to be taken out of that drug discourse and talked about in a different way. And, and the first step in that has happened. The TGA only a few days ago has moved to propose that cannabis be moved from Schedule 9, along with heroin, cocaine and uh, methamphetamine, to Schedule 8 with other medicines like morphine, dexamphetamine, Ritalin. And this is what we need to do in terms of psychedelics. We need to shift the dis we need to shift the way in which we talk about them so that we are framing them as non-drugs, as pharmaceuticals, as medicines, so that they are not framed within the dominant discourses of drugs that are so entrenched within Australian society. And this has been done very well by MAPS, I think, in the US, but it's taken them years. MAPS was started in 1986, and we're looking at 2021 for for it as a medicine. So this is a long process of chipping away at these deeply ingrained constructions. Um, so how do we do that? Well, I thought I think it's great that I've seen this recent um, this this recent um, idea hashtag psychedelics because because it provides a way of talking about psychedelics outside of the dominant discourse. The problem with talking about drugs without, outside of the dominant discourse is that drugs are framed within this pathological paradigm. And so if you talk outside of the pathological paradigm, then the information that you're presenting may be deemed as irrational or, or just simply incorrect, not untrue. And we see the pathological paradigm um, emerge in terms of the way that research is funded. Because research that conforms with the dominant discourse receives lots and lots and lots of money. 
Australia spends lots and lots and lots of money looking at the drugs and how they are dangerous. Not so much time spending money on what benefits there might be. Because drugs are not illegal because they're dangerous. They're perceived as dangerous because they're illegal. And we need to maintain that perception by funding studies that demonstrate that drugs are dangerous to maintain the status quo, to maintain the power structures that exist within contemporary Australian society and and at a a global level. I mean, this is happening at the UN um, with, the, with, the, with the UN General Assembly meeting very soon to talk about the conventions that many countries around the world uh, have signed up to. So most research funding, as I mentioned, is spent on proving that drugs are dangerous. So how do we conduct psychedelic... So how do we conduct psychedelic research... Because it's not going to come from the pharmaceutical companies because giving somebody a dose of MDMA and fixing them doesn't really fit with their business model of putting someone on an SSRI indefinitely. These dominant discourses don't just, aren't just limited to drug research and it highlights that as much as science likes to believe that it is, is, it is objective, it can never be completely objective. And psychology wants to be a science. Psychology really wants to be a science. <laughs> because if psychology is a science, then we have power. We can... Uh, we can hold truth, that the information that we say is held with truth value. And really the father of, the, of, of psychology evolving as a science was William James, who, who was a philosopher. He wanted to understand how the mind worked. And he took an empirical approach. He took a scientific approach. And this included the use of nitrous oxide. And... Um, his use of nitrous oxide came to fruition uh, with some profound, some profound understandings of the mind, such as there are no differences but degrees of differences of degree between different degrees of difference and no difference. <laughs> Empirical evidence using nitrous oxide. Then came Sigmund Freud, and um, Sigmund was a, was a trained as a medical doctor, so he wanted, you know, he understood the idea of, of medicine and science, and he wanted to understand mental illness within a scientific and medical framework, and he's the, he, of course, developed psychoanalysis. But he was criticised for his lack of meeting scientific assumptions because many of his theories simply can't be tested. And the theories that he came up with were based on just, you know, some of his, obs- his, his, his ideas and observations. They weren't based on the experimental method. This all changed quite, um, quite, for, quite randomly, really, with a, a German fellow called Ivan Pavlov who um, used the experimental method to describe conditioning. 
And basically, conditioning is uh, the the hallmark of how we understand learning within within psychology. And uh, so, to, to briefly describe it to you, an unconditional stimulus is the smell of food. An unconditional response is that you salivate. If I ring a bell at the same time as providing you with the food, um, you will, after time, if I repeat that over and over again, after time, if I just ring the bell, you'll salivate. If you want to find out how he came, came across this learning um, and you're a bit of an ethicist or an animal lover, I'd, I'd suggest that you don't delve too deeply into it. But what, what happened here was is that his research was replicated widely and extrapolated and became an essential theory of psychology and, in particular, psychotherapy. Then came a fellow called Ian Thorndike, who there are very few laws, and in fact, I think there only is one law in psychology, and it's the law of effect. And the law of effect is that behaviours that produce a positive response in a situation will be more likely to occur again in that situation. So basically what he's talking about is reward and punishment, the law of effect. Then came the next scientist, Skinner, who extended Thorndike's work. He came up with the idea of positive and negative conditioning and positive and negative punishment. So positive reinforcement is when uh, you give a dog a treat, you tell a dog to sit, you give it a treat, that's positive reinforcement. Next time you tell the dog to sit, you give it a treat, it's positive reinforcement. If you just tell the dog to sit, then it sits on its own. There's, 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 the dog has been, con- has, um, has been conditioned to engage in that behaviour in response to the stimulus of being told to sit. Negative reinforcement is when you take away something Uh, when you take away something unpleasant. So when you take a Panadol when you have a headache, and if your headache goes away, then you're going to be more likely to take Panadol next time you have a headache. Positive punishment is when you inflict something negative upon somebody. Negative punishment is when you take away a six-year-old's Xbox. You're taking away something they like. But um, he became a bit of a fundamentalist uh, because he said that all human behaviour can be described by operant conditioning. There is no free will. Every behaviour you engage in from here on in is related to the operant conditioning that's occurred from your past. And in addition to that, he said, if you can't see it, you can't measure it. Therefore, the mind is not something to be researched. The mind's this black box we can't see into. And I'm going to leave it on that rather um, poignant unpoint, uh, which Stephen, uh, Dr. Stephen Bright there does uh, go into further uh, on the video, youtube.com forward slash TV for the EG, EGA uh, YouTube channel. And Dr. Stephen Bright there was talking at the uh, Global Psychedelic Dinner in Melbourne last year at the Flory Institute. Uh, and there is a, another event coming up soon uh, that we'll talk about in just a tick. But yeah, I, I highly recommend you 
uh, listen to the rest of that because he does uh, uh, go into what um, what this guy was talking about um, and uh, how it sort of undermines um, different different models of the mind and how that's all really what it relates back to. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM digital and streaming at 3cr.org.au. You're listening to In Psychedelia with Nick and Ash uh, events. Yeah, uh, the Yarra Drug and Health Forum is having an event next Wednesday at the Richmond Town Hall from 12 till 2 p.m. And that's going to be with the presenter, Professor Peter Miller, the director for the Centre for Drug and Alcohol Addiction Research at Deakin University. And the talk is going to be covering... um, the relationship between the alcohol, tobacco and gambling lobbies and public policy and how those two things interact. Uh, tickets, y- YDHF, or is it um, I think RSVP? So. Yeah, ydhf.org.au, um, and you should be able to RSVP there. Uh, the Federation of Community Legal Centres in Victoria uh, and the Melbourne Activist Legal Support Group are having an Activist Lawyer Network launch event uh, next Tuesday, the 30th of May, um, with a number of people on the panel, including uh, Robert Starry from Starry Norton Health and Criminal Lawyers, Megan Fitzgerald from Fitzroy Legal Service, Matt Wilson from Fitzroy Legal Service and Dana Jacobs from the Environmental Justice Australia and Lawyers for Forests uh, group. Uh, So if that's something you want to head along to, uh, get along. There is a Facebook event for it. Uh, Just follow Melbourne Activist Legal Support on Facebook. Students for Sensible Drug Policy have a couple of events coming up on next Thursday, the 25th. There's going to be a Know Your Rights seminar on the campus down at Melbourne Uni. And that's gonna. We're gonna hear from um, Annie Madden, who you might have heard on the show a couple of weeks back, um, former head of AVIL, the Australian Illicit Injecting Drug Users League. Um, uh, Peter Malins, the researcher who's been looking into sniffer dogs and their effects. Uh, Nevena Sparovsky, who we heard from on the show uh, a couple of weeks back, who's launched the High Alert campaign. Uh, I'll be on the panel and some lawyers to answer people's questions. And Greg Denham as well from the Yarra Drug and Health Forum. Star-studded cast. So ticket, tickets for that? Uh, if you, we'll, we'll put the event up on the Encyclopedia Facebook will, page. Yes. Yep. Uh, all, all that we're talking about here, if you follow us on social media, on Facebook or Twitter, uh, you'll be able to find out information there. We've also got a website with a bit more, uh, some, some specific stories and uh Links to uh, everywhere that you need to go or 3cr.org.au and follow the links to the Encyclopedia uh, program page. Uh, in two Sundays' time, uh, the Australian Psychedelic Society are holding a, another event. Uh, it's the Psychedelic Science 2017 Recap. Uh, Psychedelic Science 2017 was a conference uh, in Oakland, California that occurred um, uh, about a month ago now, um, bringing together experts from around the world uh, to uh, talk about uh, the many different research projects that are going on um, uh, into using psychedelics for a variety of things, including um, many uh, health conditions, mental health conditions. Uh, and we're going to be hearing from uh, some of the people from Australian Psychedelic Society and the psychedelic community in uh, Melbourne who were there, uh, including Dr. Nigel Strauss. Uh, he's a psychiatrist at Millswood Clinic and professor at Deakin University. Dr. Martin Williams from Psychedelic Research in Science and Medicine. Uh, Melissa Warner, who is one of the founding members of the Australian Psychedelic Society. Uh, same with Dr. Dean Wright, who who was also at the conference, and uh, Dr. Giancarlo Alacoa, 
um, a neuroscientist at the Flurry Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health, all starting at 3 o'clock. It's uh, $10. Uh, there are tickets on Eventbrite and uh, follow the Australian Psychedelic Society for more info on that. The next monthly meetup for SSDP is happening on June the 1st, Thursday evening at the Clyde Hotel in, um, I think it's Carlton North there. Uh, so come on down if you want to meet uh, people from the SSDP network and other drug law reform activists. It's uh, more of a chill, have a beer and a chat than any kind of formal meeting. And it's always good to have those as well because um, sometimes the formality um, of some events can detract from that kind of openness and flowiness in conversation. You you definitely need to get out into social environments with um, people that you, you work with, whether it's uh, over a drink uh, of uh, alcohol or not alcohol or whatever your substance happens to be. Um, you know, not telling you to break the law here, but uh, socialise is what I'm saying. Uh, it's important to the process. Um, now, uh, Operation High Alert last night... Uh, the uh, 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 sorry, Operation High Alert versus Operation Safe Night. High Alert is in response to Operation uh, Safe Night, which uh, is the local uh, Port Phillip police uh, saying that they will be out with sniffer dogs up until August at random times across the Chapel Street and Commercial Road precincts across Peran, Windsor, uh, that kind of area. Um, Ash, you've been following pretty closely. Yeah, I've headed out. Um, I didn't go last night, but the last couple of weekends I've, I've headed out to observe the operation. Um, have I, have I spoken about what it looks like on the show? Uh, you told us a little bit about it, but just uh, remind us. So um, essentially the, the way that they're running the operation is the police will go and form a perimeter around the queue outside of a nightclub and then bring in the sniffer dog to detect drugs on people and then plainclothes officers will come over and search them. Mm. So it's quite um, intimidating. Yeah, it's very saying. intimidating. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's kind of um, like, I guess, a bit of a visual idea of what it looks like. And for all of this effort of surrounding and intimidating all of these people, um, the night that I witnessed, there was only 10 detections of substances. Well, 10, 10 times where they found substances. Um, the dog obviously indicated more than that, which is part of the problem. Um, and that resulted in nine diversions and one charge on summons. So, you know, they're, they're investing a lot of time into intimidating quite a few people mm. for uh, very poor results. And and as well, we, oh, I think we need to look here because some people might see those 10 people and go, oh, well, that's 10 people saved from the evils of drugs. But that's where we need to uh, have a look at that argument. What are they actually saving people from? Are they actually saving anyone or is that kind of an illusion? Is it more that people uh, get uh, don't, don't change their mind about uh, what they were going to do because the police uh, have done something uh, to them? They might feel guilty about it. It might stuff up things in their life. It might stuff up work or education. It might st- stuff up opportunities might create difficulties in the family and all around this idea that you're saving somebody from drugs but then you never get to have the conversation uh, about drugs in any kind of honest way because you're always trying to you know hold up this idea that the decision was bad the decision was bad there is no choice there is no other part of that discussion uh if you want to learn more about your rights in relation to operation safe night come down to melbourne uni next thursday night or the SSDP Know Your Rights panel. 
highalert.com.au is the website as well if you want to follow along there um, and find out a little bit more information. Uh, also, uh, Victoria Street Drug Solutions, I uh, highly recommend following them on Facebook. Uh, they have uh, released a little bit about this coroner's, this latest coroner's report if you want to uh, get up to date with that. I'm sure it's something we'll hear a bit more about, but the government does seem pretty intent on not debating this issue right now and not letting it... Uh, be something that they uh, get caught up on. I think they're seeing it as too difficult. They're being weak in, weak in the face of uh, surmounting piles of evidence, um, and they they're going to need pressuring on this issue. But uh, we wait and see. This is in psychedelia. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday afternoon. Find us on 3cr.org.au and follow the links to the Encyclopedia program page. Queering the air. Up next. See ya. This is in psychedelia. Comments, complaints, or contributions are welcome. Jump on the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au, and head to the Encyclopedia program page. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter, or send us an email. Encyclopedia does not condone or condemn people who use drugs for their choices. Our aim is to present the diverse intersections of psychoactive drugs and society. If you are concerned about your own drug use or a friend's drug use, DirectLine provides a free and confidential counselling service 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-800-888-236. And Psychedelia will be back on 3CR from 2pm next Sunday. You've been listening to a 3CR community radio podcast of Encyclopedia. Find us on Facebook and Twitter.